Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Easton White, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Vermont. He joined us to discuss species population trends, and in particular, how much monitoring conservationists need to get an accurate picture of the population's health, which is obviously something that's going to be very important if you're trying to figure out how to conserve it. His method for establishing that time period may well be a significant improvement on the standard approaches, so let's let him describe it. Dr. White, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, before we get too far into the, you know, the specific content of your analysis, I was hoping we could chat just a little bit about, you know, population dynamics as a more general matter, um, and how are the how those are measured. So, you know, kind of what's the general approach? How do people find out how a species is doing in the world? Yeah, so it's a good question. So it's, it's really kind of the cornerstone, I think, of a lot of ecological and conservation work is thinking about how do we monitor populations over time. And so, for example, if you're interested in studying lizards on islands in the Caribbean, you would go out to various islands and you would set up your lizard traps and catch lizards day in and day out until you caught um, a representative number and try to get some estimate of that population. Okay, and so that would give you uh, just a single point, though. You know, that's that's one set of estimates. Um, how, how does this, you know, kind of go over time? How do you detect a trend? Yeah, so... That's, that's the difficult part. And so in that idealized setting with these lizards on these islands, you can get maybe you know one sample for one island. But then the question becomes where, well, how many islands do you sample and how long do you sample for? Because this monitoring, it's really, really difficult to like, you know, run around and go catch lizards or whatever you know, species you're thinking about. It's also very expensive. Um, and so what you have to do is sample in many different places over long, long periods of time to try to start understanding the trend in that in that population um, over over um, many years or even decades, and I guess then that comes to the question of you know like how long do you have to look for to detect a trend? I, you know, I would imagine sticking with the lizards for a second um, that there could be situations in which you know um, you had a, a weather event or something like that, a hurricane sure. go through uh, that would you know pound that population down to a very low level for a brief period of time, but it wouldn't be indicative of a larger trend. You know, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, absolutely. So you could definitely imagine a situation like that where let's say you're studying a population, you have a couple of years of funding and you, there's some big, let's say hurricane going through the Caribbean and that knocks down the lizard populations. And so you've monitored, you monitoring that population for a couple of years and you see that there's a decline. So you start kind of ringing the alarm bells. You see a decline happening. Um, but if you looked at it over a longer time period, you'd see that the lizards were down for a couple of years, but then they're going to bounce back, and they're actually fine in that case. So you can really make serious mistakes by not sampling for long enough in that, in that case. And so the trick is you've got to sample for the right amount of time because if you don't, you're not going to capture the trends that are you know, underlying the noise in the system. Yeah, exactly. And it definitely depends on the species that we're talking about. So different species will vary more or less year to year. Um, but for something like a lizard or a rodent that might vary a lot year to year, um, you might need to sample for a long time because it um, how much they vary from year to year. Um, so yeah, you definitely have to sample for a long time, but it's going to depend 
on the particular population that you're studying. Okay, so to avoid sending up these, you know, false alarm bells, or to avoid missing, you know, uh, perhaps a species decline that you could have stopped with conservation actions had you known about it, uh, you need to be sampling for the right period of time. And I guess that leads to the obvious question of how do you know how long you need to sample for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and there's a few um, kind of rules of thumb out there right now. So the IUCN, which is the International Union for Conservation of Nature, they have this, year, this rule that says um, if there's a 30% decline over 10 years or three generations uh, of the species, whatever is longer, then we can consider that, that population to be threatened in some way. So that's a nice rule of thumb that a lot of people use, but it's not very specific to certain populations. So um, what you have to do is start using um, some other mathematical and statistical tools to try to figure out um, the exact number of years that you should be sampling. Okay, and just you know, sticking to that IUCN um, rule of thumb for a moment, do they use that rule of thumb for everything? Is that how status is determined? So that's one way status can be determined. It's by that rule. So there's, there's other ways to determine if a species is threatened. Like if you don't have that long-term uh, data available, there's other ways to determine it, but that's just one commonly used rule of thumb. Okay, so that, that methodology, though, not applicable across you know all different species. So you know, you mentioned some tools. What tools would you use if you were trying to beat that rule of thumb, if you were trying to get a more accurate picture? Sure. And so if we're thinking about some trend over time, what we're really trying to figure out is if there is a, if there really is a trend over time, what is our probability of detecting that trend? And so this is the idea of what's called statistical power, um, which is a fancy stats term, but to give you an example, um, a non-ecological example, you can think about the setting where, let's suppose a woman who very much knows she's pregnant. She goes to see her doctor, and she goes to see her doctor, and she's nine months pregnant. It's very, very obvious she's pregnant. You would hope that that doctor is going to have a really high probability of detecting the fact that that woman is pregnant, because it's so, so obvious. Um, if that doctor failed to detect that pregnancy, then we would say he's making a false neg he's, he's having an error that's called a false negative. Um, and so we can have the same thing happen um, in the ecological setting where we can falsely detect a population. Trend. Okay, so that would be like uh, the population is actually declining and, um, you know, we don't notice it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it could be like this, this lizard population in the Caribbean where the population is declining, uh, but basically, you know, be, the, maybe we're not monitoring enough or we're monitoring it in the wrong places, but we're not able to detect what is actually going on there. So that would mean we're making a false negative error. Um, and so um, we didn't have a very high statistical power because we didn't have a high probability of trying to detect what was actually going on. And so if we had, you know, a properly statistically powered sampling model, um, we would then have enough samples to be able to detect that trend with a high degree of confidence? Yeah, exactly. And so you talk about this all the time in, at, all across science when you think about uh, how much, how many samples do you need? So you think about this for like a medical study, how many people do you have to sample in order to be confident um, in what's going on? It's the same thing in the case of ecological time series where we can think about how long over time do we need to sample, but also how, how many different places do we need to sample? Or how many sample sampling times do we have to sample within a year, for instance? Do we have to sample seasonally, once per month, every day? And these are the big questions you have to ask when designing a monitoring study. Okay, and so let's say that you know we've we've uh, decided that we want to you know have properly statistically uh, powered um, sampling protocols. 
How do we find out what those are? Yeah, so that's a good question, and it's difficult. Um, and so there's kind of two main ways you can do it. Uh, one, you could look at other species that have had um, they've been able to figure out how long they needed to be sampled for and find similar species that might um, be representative of, of the species you're studying, for example. Um, the other way to do it is to build a population model. And so this would just be like a computer simulation where you're trying to you know, project out that population and play different games with that model to try to understand um, if, the, you know, if the population is declining a certain amount, uh, how long you would need to actually sample for. Um, to detect that trend. And so you can play different games with that kind of computer simulation. Okay, so you've got some ways of putting together systems that'll give you a, a, a better estimate of, of what you need. Now, let's talk a little bit about your analysis. What were you looking at? We, you mentioned 822 populations of vertebrate species. What data did you have and, and how did you interrogate that data to come to the conclusions you did? Yeah, so these ideas of statistical power and monitoring have been around for a long time in ecology and people know about them. Um, but what had not been done before is thinking about kind of looking at wide array of species and estimating how much time you need for sampling, you know, a wide array of species over different um, characteristics, um, whether that be just different aspects of their biology or where they're living. And so what I did is I took a bunch of time series that have been collected by other researchers. And this is part of, of various databases, including the Global Population Dynamics Database, which is just a collection of time series. And I looked at um, a number of populations within that um, database. Okay, and so when you're looking at those, when you're looking at those populations from that database, you're looking at for each species, say, mm -hmm. numerous samples that have been conducted over time. Yeah, and so in that case, I was looking at samples of species that were sampled every year for thirty or more years. So these are kind of like the cream of the crop, best monitoring programs that we have uh, on the planet for um, various species that we're interested in. And then the next move is to look at the you've you've got the data and then you're looking for trends in within that data and seeing you know how many samples you would have needed to uncover those trends. Yeah, so this is something where the data has already been collected and so we already have the monitoring down. But what I was able to do is say, okay, I'm going to take this long-term data and kind of degrade it in different ways and kind of play with smaller chunks of it and see, okay, if instead of 30 years, if we only had 10 years of that data would we have made a mistake in assessing the population trend? And so I do this on a bunch of different times for each population over all the populations to get an estimate of how long for each population you need to sample for to have some confidence in the trends that you're trying to detect. Okay, so what you're basically doing is you're starting with um, you know, a data set that you know is, is good enough to demonstrate the trends. And then you look at subsets of it and see, you know, would we have seen the trend here? Would we have seen the trend here? Would we have seen the trend here? Yeah, exactly. And so um, then through that, those calculations, I ended up finding that um, about 16 years on average was the required number of years to sample um, to, have, to, be, to be confident in um, your ability to detect long-term trends in this case. Okay, so you you sixteen years would be you know the ideal, but that's averaged across all species. Average, and, and it's it's a yeah. huge amount of variability between populations because it depends completely on what's happening with each individual population. And th and this sort of methodology is not what's being used by you know conservation bodies right now. No, so conservation bodies are using, using these more simple rules to say, oh yeah, well we need, we need at least ten years of sampling, or we need three generations of sampling. I mean, kind of just using simple rules of thumb 
because often that's all all they have in those cases. Okay, and so the downside to doing that then would be that you know you're either sampling too much or too little. Yeah, and so we talked a little bit about if you sample too little, you might you know have a false alarm, for example. Right. Uh, but it's certainly the case that you can also sample for too long. Um, and so a lot of this work comes out of um, a number of people, but in particular Dr. Tara Martin at University of British Columbia, um, that has really highlighted the fact that you can sample for too long, and when you're collecting more and more data to try to show that some result is, um, is true or not, that you might actually miss the opportunity to do something about the conservation or management of that particular species. Okay, that makes sense to me. So you have a methodology for you know figuring out what's the appropriate statistical power uh, or, or how to have an appropriately statistically powered sampling regime for each species that you analyzed. And it's not currently being used by conservation mm -hmm. organizations. So what's the hope? Is the idea that they would adopt this? And would, it, would that be something that they could do, um, you know, in a practical sense in order to, you know, make sure that their sampling protocols were, were better? Yeah. So um, kind of what we're really trying to, what I'm really trying to point out in the paper is saying that there's a huge, um, huge var variability between different populations and different species. So we really, yeah, do have to move away from these simple rules of thumb and say, uh, if we use um, the approach that I have uh, has shown here and they use that as a way to estimate um, for other species what's going on, um, either by the subsampling that we had talked about um, of real-time series or by building population models specific to the population that you're concerned about. And so uh, I think it can definitely be the case that people start using this for their particular populations that they're that they're worried about, and you know, I, I think you wouldn't want to understate the amount of money that could be saved by that, you know, this type of thing, or the amount of scientific effort that could be properly apportioned if you, you know, kind of did things in, in this manner rather than what's done traditionally. Is that is that a large factor in play? Yeah, that's really a big factor because um, the monitoring is very expensive and very time consuming, often depending on the species that you're thinking about. And so, there's a really nice example from Gerber. Um, and colleagues back in the 90s that talked about um, the eastern north, northern Pacific gray whale. So this is the gray whale species that is along the, the west coast of the U.S. that migrates up and down. Um, and they dropped to really, really low levels in the 20th century. Um, and they eventually were protected um, in 1946. And so they, then they saw these huge rebounds in population after that time. Um, but what had happened is that they were monitoring the species um, and what the Gerber and colleagues were able to show is that they were monitoring it for so long that they could have delisted species and taken it off the Endangered Species Act way earlier than they actually did in real life. And so they missed an opportunity to delist species earlier and potentially have saved a lot of money um, in all that monitoring effort that they were putting into studying that, that population over time. So and this is a case in which, you know, uh, you had people out on boats that were um, tr you know, sampling gray whales and, and c counting them when that effort and some of that conservation effort could have been spent um, trying to preserve other species. Yeah, exactly. And so there's often um, this thinking about this allocation of funding for, for species protection is a, is a really um, important topic to think about. Where do you spend money at? You, if, you're, if you can't protect everything because you don't have enough funding, how do you prioritize? And so doing these types of analyses will help us prioritize where we're not sampling enough, where we're maybe sampling too much and putting too much effort into. That's fascinating. So it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, further extensions of one, using these tools um, in more applied settings, but also developing these tools further to say, 
well, in addition to how long do you sample for, what are the best places for sampling, um, how many samples do you need to take of each um, particular population or species. And so there's a lot of work to think about how do you build better, more efficient monitoring programs. And so you, you may have just answered my next question, which is, you know, what's next for your research? What kinds of questions are you um, looking at right now? Yeah, so yeah, kind of right along those lines of thinking about um, basically how do we monitor better and how do we do it in a more efficient way? Um, and so we're doing some work now thinking um, not how long do we need to sample for, uh, but where in space do we need to sample? So if you're studying a population um, of, let's say, these lizards on these islands, trying to understand which islands do we need to sample, um, how often we need to sample them, um, and, and what locations are kind of the key sampling areas um, that would help us you know, have more efficient monitoring in this case. That's interesting. And do you use the same kind of approach in which you look at a, you know, very rich and long data set um, with a lot of samples and then, you know, degrade it and, and look at chunks of it and, and see what you can learn? You certainly can. The approach we're taking right now is doing more of the computer simulation approach. So we're building these hypothetical species in a computer um, that are living on, you know, these multiple islands. And, and we're saying, okay, let's pretend we go out and sample these islands in this computer, in these computer games. And then we'll see through these iterated games what the best monitoring scheme would have been um, for this particular case. Okay, and at the risk of sounding really stupid, how do you know that the, your computer simulation is behaving in the same way the species would in the wild? Right, no, that's a very good question. And so we, we build this, this uh, computer simulation and we have to test it against something. And so um, this would be something very similar to something like um, if you're monitor, uh, modeling um, uh, global global emissions, for example, for CO2, and you want to project that forward. Um, you need to have some way to ask, well, is that a good projection forward? And so what you would do is you would compare to maybe some past data to say, well, how would it have done in the past to give us some confidence about how it might perform in the future? Um, and so we'll compare it to actual real data, but real population to see how well um, th these ideas from a computer game, these computer simulations or computer games, actually perform in the real life. Okay, so basically you get an idea of, of how the simulation works by comparing it with real data, and then you are able to then use the simulation to extrapolate out into conditions that you would anticipate in the future? Yeah, anticipate in the future, or just for other populations that maybe we don't have a lot of data for. So we might use a simulation in place of a bunch of data to try to understand and project forward for that particular population. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I guess we'll look forward to, to hearing more about that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm curious just about your original analysis. You know, most of us don't sit in front of R all day and <laughs> have uh, limited familiarity with statistical software and methodologies. What kind of effort went into that original 822 species analysis? You know, how much of this had to be done manually and how much of it could be, you know, automated and done quickly? Sure. So um, a lot of this actually came out um, a few years ago, actually before I started my PhD, I was working... Um, in British Columbia with Dr. Julia Baum at University of Victoria, and I was there on a Fulbright scholarship. And we were basically, long story short, we were studying um, population trends of sharks and stingrays in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and with these multiple decade time series, and we, we just kept talking about how great these time series were because they were so long. Um, and I kept thinking, you know, is, are these populations, is the time series actually long enough? And so, that question kind of bothered me for a number of years um, before I started seriously trying to investigate um, if I could actually do something about that question and try to answer it. 
So that's when I found um, these large databases of these population time series, and I started playing around with them. And so it's one of those things, um, it's very tricky to um, run some of these, these analyses for the first population, but once you get going on a few populations, you can kind of start automating for all the other populations. So it's not like I hand calculated things 822 times. I certainly had a lot of automation. There. No, that, well, that's good to hear. Um, but, and that, but that sounds like a, a fascinating project, and we'll look forward to learning more. Uh, Dr. White, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, th- yeah, thanks for having me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.